Okay, first of all, before you get into that, anything real about it, it's played by Albert Brooks. He's the guy <laughs> who voices the dad in Finding Nemo. Correct. And I just can't picture him as anything other than that. Other than a clownfish? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> Every time I look away and I hear his voice, I'll be like, wait, do we change movies? <laughs> Is there going to be a fish on screen? Yeah. He was bad with his kids in that movie and this one too. Mm, that's so true. Yeah, he can't really, doesn't do a great job as a dad. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode of Pennies and Popcorn, where we will be diving into a movie that at least age-wise hits a little bit close to home for us. We're going to be talking about This is 40. We have not yet hit the big 4-0 in life, but it is coming. It is coming around the mountain. It is not far away. Yeah. So we thought this would be a fun movie to tackle, and there is a ton of great money content in here. There sure is. So if you haven't seen the movie in a while, it is kind of a sequel to Knocked Up. The The, the main characters here are played by Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann, and they were sort of side characters in Knocked Up. And mm-hmm. there's actually a few callbacks in the movie to the Knocked Up characters themselves. So if you like that one, you'll probably like this one. Yeah, it does have a similar feel to it, to Knocked Up. It's definitely got that Jad, Judd Apatow? Jad Apatow? Judd. Judd Apatow stamp on it um, that you just can't miss. In fact, his whole family is in the movie. So <laughs> Leslie Mann is his wife in real life, and his two real-life children, Iris and Maude Apatow, play Leslie Mann's children on screen. There are some really sweet moments in the movie where we have, like, the mother and the daughters interacting. And I feel like you can just feel the vibe that they're a real family. And it's it's very sweet. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie. But overall, I have to say, I'm not a huge, huge fan of this film. I do feel like there are some undercurrents of misogyny kind of flowing through it, which was also true of Knocked Up, so not totally surprising. And man, just the relationship that we see portrayed on screen, I feel like is not... Just not a good, solid relationship at all. (laughs) So how do you feel about this movie, Robert? Uh, I mean, I thought it was entertaining. It's a little long, right? It's over two hours, but I I don't know. It's it's got that same brand of humor. If you like that Judd Apatow works, you'll probably like this one. But in terms of an instructive how to do your life better when you reach 40, not perfect. (laughs) Well, okay, so this is interesting. There is now a movie presumably that's going to be called This is 50, that is in the works. Judd Apatow put out an interview recently and said that he is actively working on this and trying to get it done. I assume it's going to involve his real-life family again, maybe some of the same characters, I don't know. But Can Paul Rudd pull off a 50-year-old? Um, Paul Rudd doesn't age. You mean because he doesn't age? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like both of them look young for their ages, so it'll be... Uh, something to aspire to. When we get to be 50, hopefully we'll look as good as Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann. Okay, here's the big question, I think. Judd Apatow said in the interview that he gave recently that one, he feels like the movie really holds up and that he thinks people watch it as they approach 40 or hit 40 and are always coming to him and saying, this is so accurate. It really feels like what it was like to turn 40. 
And I just love the movie and its portrayal of what it's like to be a 40-year-old in America. So how do you feel about that? Is we're, I feel like we're close enough to 40. It's like a year and a half away for me, less than a year away for you. So we're close enough that I feel like we could weigh in on this discussion. How does the movie feel to you in terms of the portrayal of the age of 40? Does this feel like some sort of insightful piece as to what it's like to approach that number or not at all? Well, before we get to that, let's talk about whether or not the movie holds up. Because I, I do have to say that they're like most of the stuff still seems relatively current. It doesn't feel dated or anything like that, with the exception of the oldest daughter being obsessed with the television show Lost, which turns <laughs> out was a real world thing for her. Yeah. Like she did that. She watched the whole series in several weeks, which was just insane. Um, and then I think there was uh, some humor at the expense of a doctor who had an Indian accent, which yeah. seemed pretty trash. Oh my gosh, pretty trash. jumped I don't know out at me on. too, yeah. Yeah, that felt way like... I don't know how that flew in 2012 when this movie came out. So that, that was pretty bizarre. Yeah. But is it relevant? Is it is it indicative of the way that I feel about life? I don't know. It's tough. We don't have any children. A lot of it focused on the whole family dynamic there. I certainly can see glimpses of it, but I have to squint pretty hard for it to look pretty clear to me. There's a lot of poor communication in the marriage. There is a lot of checked out father syndrome, which is a pretty common Hollywood trope, although also probably pretty common in the real world. Um, I don't know. It just, something about it seemed a little off to me. It definitely did the whole um, crazy high standard of living that doesn't line up with people's real world jobs and incomes kind of thing that you see in TV and movies a lot. So that always turns me off just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Those are all fair comments. Okay. First, as you did, I want to address the whether it stands up thing. There was also a comment about uh, Dr. Oz in the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She. I think it's uh, Leslie Mann's character makes some offhand comment about like, don't you watch Dr. Oz? And well, I don't know if you're paying attention to politics these days, but Dr. Oz is uh, kind of taken a turn for um, a little bit more on the crazy side. So he's uh, he's not quite where he was 10 years ago, which I thought was kind of a funny and dated thing from, from the film. But for my take on whether it portrays what it feels like to be approaching the age of 40, it just felt really overblown and ridiculous. One of the main tropes of the movie is that these characters are just kind of drifting apart. They're struggling to really communicate with each other especially about finances, which is a huge part of what we're going to talk about today. But that part does not resonate with me at all. I think as time goes on, our relationship gets deeper and more fun. And we're not like running off to the bathroom to play on our iPads for 45 minutes at a time just to get away from each other for a bit. But you're right. A lot of it has to do with having kids. And that part just doesn't doesn't click with us at all. But overall, I'm not a super huge fan of the movie or how it portrays like gender stereotypes and a lot of things in that vein. So with all of those impressions behind us, let's go ahead and dive into our very first clip. This again, just sort of like typifies these gender stereotypes that we're going to see throughout the film. So Leslie Mann is actually turning 40. Also, P.S. I think she was like right at 40 when she filmed this. So it's a bang on role for her, but her 40th birthday is happening They are pretending that it is her 38th birthday, even though they all know it's really her 40th birthday. And 
she and her husband, Paul Rudd, are having a discussion about birthday presents. What did you get me for my birthday? Wait a minute, I thought you said that we shouldn't get each other gifts this year. What do you mean? You're supposed to get me a surprise gift. This is a big birthday. I'm turning 40. <laughs> so she's finally admitting she's turning 40. Um, but apparently they had this discussion that they weren't going to get each other gifts. I think their birthdays are within like a week of each other. So they talked about this, decided no gifts this year. And then she is at the last second like, um, didn't you know you were supposed to still get me one anyway, even in spite of that conversation? So, Robert, we have a little bit of a history. We do. With things along these lines. Would you like to uh, explain it a little bit? Let's set the stage. <laughs> February 14th, 2005. Carl and I have been dating for almost six months at this point. We've known each other for a while. But we're both really busy. I believe it's your roommate's birthday. I was working on my senior design project. We decided very, very clearly in the weeks leading up to February 14th, 2005, that we weren't going to do anything for Valentine's Day, which by the way, was a total relief for me because I had no clue what to do. <laughs> I still don't really know what you should do. Anyway, we agreed like on a blood oath that we would do nothing. <laughs> there was no blood involved. Blood oath. <laughs> That we would do nothing for each other for Valentine's Day and there were no expectations and we both had things that we needed to be doing that were more important with our time and no big deal. We hung out constantly. We didn't do it, need to do anything special for Valentine's Day until February 14th, 2005 happened and literally dozens of people asked Carla, oh, what did Robert do for you for Valentine's Day? <laughs> what are you guys doing for Valentine's Day tonight? And the answer, nothing dozens of times coming out of Carla's mouth, changed her opinion. I, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there to see the evolution from this nice, reasonable, responsible partner I had who agreed with me we weren't going to do anything for Valentine's Day, who in the course of a dozen hours turned into a raging monster of oh anger, <laughs> disappointed, nearly breaking up with me over the fact that I didn't do anything. I, I felt like such a schmuck. You got so mad at me for doing nothing. And I just did exactly what we agreed to. My heart is still broken over this. I don't think I was mad at you so much as I just kind of had my feelings hurt. And I will say... You, you wanted okay, a surprise 40th birthday I present? I did. I wanted a surprise. I mean, it would have been like 20th at the time. We were very, very young. And I think I was much more susceptible at the time to that peer pressure. But it's hard to resist. And I also want to add another piece of the puzzle is that everyone who I was having these conversations with, it was just unavoidable. You're talking to people, it's February 14th. Everyone's like, you've got a new boyfriend, newish boyfriend. What are you guys doing? Are you doing something special? Did he do something sweet for you? And every time I would just say, oh, we haven't, we decided not to do anything. I would get this response. Oh my gosh, don't worry. He's going to do something <laughs> as a surprise. Well, your friends are idiots. Yeah, they hadn't uh, gotten to know you very well, clearly. Um, but yeah, that was the thing I kept getting over and over again was don't worry. He'll do something. He'll do something. You're going to go home tonight and like he'll have cooked dinner for you or something, which P.S. That would have been a nice thing to do. I was in the lab <laughs> working on my senior design project. Uh -huh. Anyway, I do think in hindsight that I should have been more honest with myself and introspective and i should have predicted that this was going to happen that i did right? what that, we agreed to no, wow no, that, that, I, that is nice that you could have predicted that i would have been a good partner that 
I was going to get that kind of social pressure uh, yeah. from other sources and should have just told you like, look, we got to do something, right? It's our first Valentine's together. Let's do something. I'm going to be a little sad if we don't. That is what I should have done. That is what Leslie Mann should have done. Her character's name is Debbie. That is what Debbie should have done, right? She should have had an honest conversation with herself and then with her husband that was like, no, this is actually kind of a big deal. If you do absolutely nothing, I'm going to be a little hurt about it. So I think it's great if you have a relationship where you guys have genuinely agreed that you don't have to get each other gifts. That's where we are today. Well, hold on. Because of this PTSD from Valentine's Day 2005, (laughs) when we reached that moment, it was right before Christmas. We decided we're not going to do anything this Christmas. We're going to go visit Carla's family. We're going to be staying at their home. And in past years, we had exchanged gifts with one another, along with exchanging gifts with her whole family. I was mortified. I was terrified, right? I was so certain that another bait and switch was going to happen. <laughs> uh, I didn't do anything, but I was so nervous that I was going to be walking into the lion's den where Carla had gotten me an abundance of lovely, thoughtful gifts to celebrate the season, and I had nothing for her. I was terrified, Carla. Just want to let you know that. But we didn't, right? And we've stuck to our guns ever yeah. since then. You didn't go back yeah. on your word that year. And no one, or ever again, <laughs> or ever again. It was the one time when we were very young, we just started dating. Just the one time. Also, there was no like threat of breakup. I was just sad and disappointed. I've had my little 20 year old feelings hurt. But yeah, there was no like epic <laughs> fight or blowout or anything. It was not that bad. But yeah, I think it's lovely to get to this point in a relationship where buying each other presents is just no longer that big of a deal. However, I will say some people, gifts is like their language of love, right? They just get really excited about it. And if that's you, that's there's nothing in the world that's wrong with that. But again, this is about like honest introspection. Figure out what's actually going to make you happy, what's actually going to make you feel disappointed and hurt, and just talk to each other like real human beings, right? Don't play mind games with each other. Don't like secretly hope that he's going to know you want something just because maybe you hinted at it like seven months ago in a very (laughs) obtuse way. Be straight with each other over stuff like this. What I like about our model where we don't get each other presents for any of the standard times is that occasionally we'll do nice things for one another at a random time. Very occasionally. I, I, I don't very often, let's be honest. But it feels so much more special when that happens, right? Instead of you feeling the pressure of needing to come up with something that lives up to the moment for my 37th birthday or whatever it is. You just, when you're out and about and doing something or you, you run across something, you have a cool idea that you think would make my day special and you go execute it. That's, that's 10 times more fun for me than when I feel like you are responding to some sort of social obligation. Yeah, I totally agree. I think little or even big, just the idea of spontaneous gifts that's not dictated by some specific date on the calendar, yeah, that can be a lot more meaningful. I will say I think it is nice to mark special occasions in some way and not just let them go by completely unnoticed, whether it's just, you know, like a heartfelt thing that you say to each other or a card or a meal, something to mark the occasion, I think is a nice idea. Wasn't there an office episode where they celebrated one of the people's birthdays with a sign that said, it is your birthday? That is correct. Is that that, that what you're looking for for me? (laughs) 
Uh, I mean, I think we do a pretty decent job of this kind of stuff, right? We just... Good morning, Carla. It is our anniversary. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that's actually like a whole thing now, right? Like people play in birthday parties with that theme all the time. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can buy like office themed with birthday like quarter filled balloons. Yeah. That. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. <laughs> um, anyway, I think the takeaway here is gifts can be great. You got to spend within your budget, whatever that is, which theirs is pretty tight at the moment as we're about to talk about. But gifts can be lovely, but you got to be honest about what the expectations are. Otherwise, you're looking at a world of hurt feelings. And Don't bait and switch me. Disappointments and uh, yeah, maybe even some tears. So very important to be honest. So let's jump ahead now to our next clip where we get into some of the meat of the money problems that this couple is having because they are deep and they are varied and <laughs> they're pretty serious. So let's listen to this first conversation between Paul Rudd's character and his accountant. And then you miss the mortgage payment and that's the second mortgage. You got to tighten your belt. You got to go home, sit down, look at your expenses, come clean with Debbie. Oh God, I can't tell Debbie. You got to tell her, Pete. I mean, she knows it's bad, but she has no idea just how bad. If you sell the house, it'll really buy you some time. No, Debbie's not really into selling the house. As your business manager and your friend, I can't recommend that. Hey, how funny would it be if I bought your house? <laughs> yeah, this uh, business manager slash accountant feels like a bit of a vulture, doesn't he? I can make you a not-so-sweet deal on it. Uh, yeah, who knows what kind of a deal he would offer, but it seems like there would just be such a weird thing to have him say to you. Um, okay, so we got a lot going on in this clip. Let's first talk about this comment that this business manager slash accountant makes about the mortgage payment. So you and I like dissected this and we listened to this clip several times trying to figure out what the heck was going on. It's clear that they've missed a mortgage payment. Yes, a mortgage payment of some sort, yeah. for sure. And then the guy says, and that's the second mortgage. And we don't know what he means by that. Does he mean that that is the second mortgage payment that they have missed? Or does that mean that they have a second mortgage on their home and they missed the payment on just the second mortgage, not the primary mortgage? These are questions that we have. Not quite clear from this clip exactly what he means by that. Yeah, I certainly thought it meant the second in a row payment on the mortgage. But I think after we listened to the rest of the movie, it became more clear that uh, this was the first time they missed the mortgage payment, or it certainly seemed like that was the case. Yeah, so it seems like they probably have a second mortgage on the house, and that's probably what he's referring to. So second mortgages are a decent option for people who need an infusion of cash and they've got a bunch of home equity just sitting there and they need a way to tap into that to get some actual cash in their hands. So a second mortgage is really just another way of saying a home equity loan, which is just slightly different from a home equity line of credit where you can go like make regular deductions from a line of credit, kind of using it as sort of a pseudo credit card almost. But home equity loan is just a one-time lump sum. They give you the equity that you have in your house. So generally, you can't get a home equity loan for the entire amount of equity that you have in your house. Only about 80 to 85% is what most lenders will do. So if you start with a primary mortgage and put down 20%, the amount of a home equity loan that you could take out is going to be quite small, right? You're looking at maybe like 5% of 
of the home equity that you have, assuming that your home value stays the same, that you could then go back and take out in a second mortgage. The longer you stay in your house, if you are building up some equity, then you've got some more equity that you could tap into. Yeah, I, I would say in general, obviously the market is the market. But in general, you should, a lot of times, your home value is going to go up over time. Certainly where we live, certainly the last handful of years, that's been the case. So you get some equity just from the fact that the value of your home has increased and your mortgage and your down payment were based on a lower valuation of the home. So there's some equity that a lot of people are able to tap into. Yeah, a little bit. Although one very important thing to note is that when you are paying down a traditional mortgage, especially a 30-year mortgage, in those first like 10-ish years or so, you are primarily paying down the interest and not the principal on the home. So you're building some equity but it's very, very small compared to the equity that you start to build in the later years of the mortgage. Based on what we see of these characters, I doubt that they're the kind of folks who are making extra mortgage payments to help you know, get that principal um, payment down. Um, so I'm guessing whatever equity they have is pretty much just from, from the market rising. Now, why would you get a second mortgage instead of just refinancing the whole home and doing like a cash out refinance? I think the reason you'd probably want to do that is only because of interest rate changes, right? If your interest rates are lower now than what they were when you got your mortgage in the first place, you might as well just refinance and refinance for a larger share of your of the home's value, right? For, for the full equity that you have in the home and then take some of that money out. I suppose if interest rates have risen, though, there's no point in trying to refinance what you have for the remainder of the home. You just want to finance your, get your money back out of it. Yeah. I mean, usually these kinds of um, home equity loans are taken out for kind of emergency situations, right? Like you've got to pay for a kid's college expenses that you... You couldn't see coming for the past 18 years? <laughs> uh, oh, no, it's an emergency. Maybe for some kids. Um, <laughs> medical debt would certainly be a reason that a lot of people would take out a loan. Often it's for a home renovation that you want to do some kind of upgrade to your house. Maybe it's necessary. But yeah, I mean, these are um, like, at least some of these are more discretionary things. Maybe medical debt would be less so. But you can use a a home equity loan for whatever you want. There are, generally speaking, no restrictions on these unless you've got some kind of strange setup with your lender. But you can go use that money for whatever you want. It seems like what these characters have done is, one, lent it to family, which we're going to get into, or used it to get a cash infusion into businesses that they have started. Okay. So enough about mortgages and our unclear understanding about what they're late on paying. Obviously, you want to pay your bills and uh, you're going to get evicted. I think we did a, a previous episode on the Goonies where we talked a little bit about this. And if you're behind by about 120, I think 120 days is in most places where the foreclosure proceedings start. Mm -hmm. But if we move on from that, one of the whole themes of this movie is their horrible communication as partners and the fact that uh, he doesn't want to tell Debbie he doesn't want to let her know. Like she knows things are bad, but not that bad. What's up with that? Yeah. Well, in fact, we actually see conversations with the couple later in the film that suggest she doesn't seem to know things are even bad, let alone like really, really bad. So yeah, this is a huge theme throughout the film. Their communication with each other is just abominable. They're actively hiding things. Well, I should say, I think he's hiding things from her much more so than the other way around. Um, but yeah, he's got serious problems with his business. It is not doing well at all. 
He runs like a small indie record label and he keeps signing these super <laughs> small, obscure unpopular bands. acts. Yeah, that like nobody likes anymore to the extent anybody ever did like them. And he's just, you know, like dedicated to the art and he thinks this music is cool and great, but it's not making them any money whatsoever. In fact, it really seems like he's losing money on some of these ventures. So he is just not doing well. And to keep the wife completely in the dark about all of this and to let her like go about her daily life, spending money as though things are completely normal, that just strikes me as a very serious infraction of, of the, I mean, the marriage vows really, right? Like you promise to be honest with each other and to, you know, support each other. And he is not doing that whatsoever. Yeah, it seems pretty ridiculous. At the same time, she should be more plugged into, right? They're both small business owners, mm-hmm. right? She runs a little boutique clothing shop kind of place. And like, why is she not in the loop on the family's finances more so than she seems to be? I don't know how you could sweep this under the rug and have her not really know. That seems that seems messed up. If, if you're having problems, I don't know, seems pretty basic to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and there would probably be notices coming from the mortgage company that you would think she would probably see. You missed a payment. Yeah. I mean, those (laughs) are going to be like with giant red letters on them. This is serious. So yeah, just the lack of communication between these two is extremely disappointing. And we hope that uh, all of you guys out there are talking to your partners about what's going on with the family finances. One of the things that I thought was funny is not shown in this clip, but later on they talk about him getting an offer for the house that uh, was kind of what the the accountant business manager person said was a reasonable offer that they should consider. In fact, it was actually above the market levels at the moment. How do they have the house on the market if Leslie Mann's character, if Debbie wasn't in the loop on this? That seems pretty weird. Yeah, it seems very unusual to get an offer on a house that one isn't on the market and two, that the people apparently haven't even seen because yeah. we... Debbie would have surely found out if there were showings in the house. Yeah, yeah, you would think so. Just a lot of questionable things going on between this husband and wife. Do you think they should have sold the house, though? Did you like this advice from their business manager? Oh, for sure. They were living in an extremely fancy house in an extremely fancy neighborhood. It looked nice. It's a gorgeous home, but it looks like it's probably in the multiple millions of dollars, especially since we're talking about California here. So, yeah, a house like that and a neighborhood like that and a state like that, holy cow, we were talking major, major money. Now, we do know that Paul Rudd's character used to work as a record label guy of some sort at Sony. So So he likes stock CDs in the back? I mean, it could be. We don't really know what his job was. We know that he left Sony because he wanted to, like, work on helping smaller artists that he was more passionate about. So maybe at one point it did make sense if he was getting like a nice fat salary from Sony to live in this house. But based on the jobs that they have currently, it does not look like it makes financial sense whatsoever. Couldn't agree more. That house is ridiculous. Go deal with your problems by downsizing to something that's more reasonable for your current standing in life and make the most of it. Yeah, very much agreed. So let's jump on to clip number three. This has to do with the boutique store that Debbie runs, as we've alluded to. She has two employees that work for her. One is played by Charlene Yee, who was also in Knocked Up, so that's kind of like a 
continuation from the Knocked Up movie, and the other is played by Megan Fox, who is famously pretty attractive, and that's kind of a running um, sort of joke throughout the the film is that all of the men in the movie are just like mouth agape attracted to this person, and Paul Rudd is no exception. But in this clip, we hear them talking about something nefarious that might be going on with Megan Fox's character. Did Jody tell you she thinks Desi's stealing? Are you serious? Mm-hmm. How much? $12,000. Oh, God. And Desi's taking it? Well, I don't know. That's what Jody said. We really need the store to work. It is. Don't put that kind of pressure on me. No, no, yeah, I, 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 it's not what I mean. I'm just... Are you nervous about money? Are we okay? Yeah. Right. Maybe we just suck it up because she's clearly earning so much more than any other employee we have. Oh yeah, for sure. We can't fire her. We're barely breaking even with her. That's why we have to keep her. (laughs) Okay, so definitely the undercurrent of like Paul Rudd thinks Megan Fox is hot. So Desi is the character played by Megan Fox. But, I mean, they did say earlier in the movie that she's bringing in, I think, like $9,000 a month, whereas uh, Jody is only bringing in $2,200 a month. So big performance differential between these two characters. Uh, yeah, we're just defend Megan Fox over there. That's why I'm Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> what can I say? Um, yeah, that's pretty much how the other men react as well. So, yeah, I think one question here is what do you do when you've got an employee that you think might be stealing from you. So a couple interesting things on this. First of all, there is a type of insurance you can purchase that will cover you for exactly this thing, for employee theft or embezzlement or any kind of dishonest act by an employee that results in a loss to the company. This is actually the kind of law that I used to practice was dealing with coverage disputes over exactly this kind of insurance protection. So it actually leads to a lot of really interesting stories. Um, One in particular that has always stood out in my memory, this was not a case I handled, but I think this was a fact pattern that I read about in another case. There was a woman who um, worked in some some fashion in the accounting department of her company, and it was her job to write checks for all of the bills that the company owed, right? Rent, utilities, paychecks, etc., Sounds pretty standard. And she would prepare all of these checks and then present them to her employer and say, here, here's everything that needs to be signed this week. Sign these checks and I'll get them out the door. So this person would just sit there and like sign check after check and apparently not really look closely at the checks that were getting signed. So eventually this woman noticed over time that she could basically present this guy with a check for whatever she wanted and it was just going to get signed no matter what. So she started to sneak into the pile checks that were just made out to her personally. And it worked for a surprisingly long amount of time. I believe the loss was, if not into the millions of dollars, very, very close to it. Just an astonishing lack of attention to detail. So some some pretty basic social engineering there. Mm -hmm. Very, very low tech, right? This is about as, as easy as it gets but she got away with it for a surprisingly long amount of time. Is there coverage? Was that a covered loss? I don't remember the details of the case, but I mean, that's pretty straightforward employee theft. I don't know. 
The boss signed it. It depends on the, <laughs> it depends on the type of coverage that you have. Every policy is going to be a little bit different most of the time. But anyway, it, I think it's an important thing for business owners to know. Surely if you're a big enough business owner, you already know this. But I was going to say for Debbie's store, though, surely the premiums are going to outweigh the likely loss. I mean, that's obviously what would happen in every instance. But I would, I would imagine the volatility for her would be tough to... To work with, I, I just can't imagine it, it would be a great buy. But then again, if you're a big box store and you have a large inventory that's incredibly expensive, or you have multiple different stores where someone has access to all of the money running through all of them, it could be a lot easier for there to be a big loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people get super creative with it. There's all kinds of creative ways to do kickbacks as well, which is another way of effectively stealing from the company. So yeah, there, there are just a million different scenarios that people have dreamed up over their hundreds and hundreds of years for as long as this kind of insurance has been around. So folks get creative. I don't want to give people ideas here, but it, uh, it definitely happens. Employee dishonesty is a very real thing. So if you are a small business employer, I would at the very least check into it. If you've got people who work for you, the temptation to steal is just always going to be there. So I would uh, check into it and make sure you have a grip on what the premiums could be and what your potential loss could be. But it's something worth investigating for most business owners, I think. So what should we do with Megan Fox? Yeah, so this is the other really interesting thing, I think, is this dilemma that it presents. Because for me, I would think it's like a a red line that just cannot be crossed, right? If you steal from me, you're out. That's it. But I don't know. They are in a very unusual situation. And if Desi had been the one stealing from them, which, spoiler alert, turns out she's not, it's actually the Jody character. <laughs> um, but if Desi had been the one doing that and she was bringing in like roughly 7000 more dollars a month every month, I think what I would do is have an honest conversation with her and say, look, you're really good at this job, but we're missing money and this cannot happen. It's illegal. I should go to the cops. But... We can have a conversation here. Do you feel, I mean, are you taking this money because you feel like you're owed a bonus for your performance? And if so, like maybe we could work something out. I don't know. It's at least a conversation to have, but once a thief, kind of always a thief. I don't know. I I love to give people a second chance. And if you can work it out and feel confident, then that would be great. That's the ideal solution for everyone. But I don't know. That would be really tough for me to get over. Yeah, I think you got to let her go. But, I mean, it's Megan Fox. I bet it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I thought was interesting here is the way that Leslie Mann's character responds to him saying, you got to make this business work. It's like, don't put that kind of pressure on me. Are you nervous about money? But but the don't put that kind of pressure on me thing seems interesting. They both presumably had more traditional jobs at some point in their lives. And they left the stability of a standard employer, a regular bi-weekly or twice a month paycheck, whatever. And now they own their own businesses, which is inherently a more risky thing to go do, right? You, you are the one who has to make it work in order to make any money. Don't put that pressure on me. Why are you opening a business if you're not comfortable with that kind of pressure? Yeah, that feels like a very naive thing to say and a very um, just sort of Like she's shrugging off any responsibility that she has towards her own children and towards herself and her husband, right? They're in this together. They're both spending money, like money's going out the door because they all are there. They're all alive. 
it costs money to be a living human being on this planet. And she's just sort of like, well, you take care of it. Like, I don't, I'm just kind of doing this for fun is almost what she seems to be implying. But yeah, we all face the pressure of making sure that we have enough money coming in the door to pay our bills, to save for retirement, to save for the inevitable day when the refrigerator breaks down or the washer and dryer floods your basement or whatever it is, right? Or Paul Rudd's business makes an investment in a musician that didn't pan out. Yeah, things are going to happen in life and many of them will cost a lot of dollars. So everybody on planet Earth has some sort of responsibility to plan for that and to think about how are we best going to tackle that as a team. And for her to just be like, well, my thing is just on the side for fun. Like, don't put any pressure on me to handle the reality of life. Just feels kind of out of touch and not not good at all. I'm not a fan of that comment. Yeah, I found it pretty disappointing. I certainly understand the idea that you, nobody wants it all on their shoulders, but both of those ventures, they should both feel some pressure to try to make them be successful or they have to make sure that one of them is or they have to be willing to cut bait and go back to another pathway that can earn them more reliable, more steady income. Yeah, I think it's especially hard to hear conversations like this when we see their lifestyle just being so obscenely lavish, right? <laughs> I mean, we see their cars in the movie several times. We've got a Lexus SUV, some kind of like BMW sedan. Uh, Leslie's character has a personal trainer that she seems to work out with multiple times a week. Um, we see them riding, or at least uh, Pete, Paul Rudd's character, has like a really nice bicycle that he rides around town. They do this weekend getaway together at a really, really nice hotel. They order insane amounts of room service. I mean, they basically just seem to be living it up in every possible way. And for her to just be like, I should just have these things, whether I put any effort into having them or not, does not seem cool to me. Not at all. Well, Debbie does figure out that things are a problem, at least, and she goes to visit the accountant to, to figure out what's going on. What financial problems? Well, I mean, for one thing, you were right. We, you are missing about $10,000 mm -hmm. from the store. And then Pete's record, you know, not selling. Pete's record well. not selling. I thought you weren't supposed to, we weren't supposed to hear for three weeks. We heard. You heard? And they're bad. You know, it's that, and it's the money that he's been lending his father. That's creating a strain. How, how much are we... How much have we lent? 80,000. Did you say 8,000 or 80,000? 80,000 over the past couple of years. And then you missed the mortgage payment. And on the house? And, oh, and the, the, you missed the rental on the office. Does Pete know that? Oh, yeah. We're on the phone all the time. Look, I know you're going through a hard time. And I want you guys to know that we're here for you, OK? Anything you guys need. That's why we're here. We're here for times like this. What are you going to do? There's not much I can do. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I love that. That's, to me, that's the best joke of the movie. The, the, <laughs> we're here for you. It's times like this that we're here for you. Uh-huh. And uh, But I, I got nothing. I can't do anything for you. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. it, it makes me think all those silly bank commercials and, and financial institution commercials who act like they're there for you for when time gets, times get rough. And they're in the exact same position. There's nothing they can do. They don't have the money to go <laughs> materially make a difference for you. That like, what, what could he possibly do to get them out of their mortgage 
inability to pay their mortgage, their inability to pay the rent on the office space, just like pay them that out of his own personal accounts or something? Yeah, it's totally insane. Although I do think there actually is one thing that he could be doing that he definitely doesn't seem to be doing. He could buy their house. Well, he could buy their house. (laughs) He could help them go line by line through all of their expenses and figure out where the heck all of the money is going, where they could cut back, where it's essential to make changes. And that doesn't seem to be on the table whatsoever. In that first conversation we hear with Pete, he does say, like, you and Debbie need to go home and do this. But he's he's an accountant. He's good with numbers. These guys seem not to be. I think it would make sense for him to sit down and say, okay, give me all your credit card bills, because I assume they're not using any other kind of financial tracker. So that's probably the best place to look. Let's dig into all your accounts. Let's see, like, How much did your accounts go down this past month? And then let's figure out where all of that money went. So that is the one thing that he could do, and he's not doing it. Yeah, there's a huge opportunity for them to go look at their lifestyle. And if they don't, I think moving is probably the silver bullet fastest way for them to go get out of this problem in a hurry. But if that's not something they're willing to do, yeah, they should go fillet open the rest of their finances and figure out what they can do. Get rid of those two fancy cars. Hopefully they aren't on leases that they can't get out of anytime soon. Hmm. Um, try to sell some of the things that they have that they don't really need. I don't know. Maybe their home could be airbnb uh, in parts. I don't know. Like there's yeah. all kinds of creative ways for them to bring in more money, for them to reduce their expenses, stop eating out at fancy places. They how many fancy cupcakes can Paul Rudd eat in this show? <laughs> he does eat a lot of cupcakes. And they all look like they're five, six dollar cupcakes. Yeah, they do. They look expensive. They also look delicious. But every single day, it's pretty insane. So... Who, who has an accountant like this that they can call on and just talk to who seems to be that in the know about their finances? It's not just tax time and they're putting together some documents for you. But clearly, he's on the phone with Pete all the time. Like, yeah. Like, who, who does this? Does this make sense for them? It does seem like an interesting relationship. So they've got two small businesses, and that does get very complicated pretty fast. So I understand the need to have an accountant in their life, certainly to help them with their taxes. But yeah, this guy seems like he's on the phone with them pretty constantly, and he's deep in the weeds on not just the businesses finances but their personal finances so it seems like he's spending an awful lot of time and accountants can be quite expensive on the low end you can probably find someone to like just help with your taxes for maybe like 30 to 50 dollars an hour but on the high end you can be into the multiple hundreds of dollars per hour for these people's time this guy's office was nice and he wants to buy their house so i mean surely he seems to be doing pretty well yeah so it's very concerning to me that they are spending this much money on an accountant. They could probably have someone take a look at their finances at the end of every year and then do the vast majority of just managing the day-to-day finances for both their businesses and themselves on their own. They probably don't need that much help. If you're going to pay somebody that much to go help you out, wouldn't you want them to, I don't know, sound an alarm as you are on a collision course of the problem, not just wait till you get there? Yeah, that would also be nice. <laughs> Maybe that was This is 39. <laughs> Maybe so. We missed that. We missed that prequel. So the other big elephant in the room with this conversation is that they have lent $80,000 to Pete's dad over just a, a two-year period. 
that is an enormous amount of money. Also, the term loan feels wildly out of place. So here's what we know about Pete's dad. Okay, first of all, before you get into anything real about it, it's played by Albert Brooks. He's the guy (laughs) who voices the dad in Finding Nemo. Correct. And I just can't picture him as anything other than that. Other than a clownfish? Yeah. Okay, that's cool. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Every time I look away and I hear his voice, I'll be like, wait, do we change movies? (laughs) Is there going to be a fish on screen? Yeah. He was bad with his kids in that movie and this one too. Mm, That's so true. Yeah, he can't really, doesn't do a great job as a dad. Anyway, Albert Brooks is uh, the actor who plays Pete's dad. We don't think he has a job. He's He was... Certainly not a stable, real job. Yeah. So the actor, Albert Brooks, was 65 at the time he played this role. So I'm guessing his character is supposed to be like roughly that age. So maybe he's collecting social security checks. Although if you start collecting early, like at 65, you're not going to be collecting a huge amount, right? So we hope he's got some money coming in the door from that. He has triplets, so three very young children. I'm guessing they're in like the like four, six-ish, five, around, something yeah, like that. they're very young. Uh, he's married. So you would think that between the two of them, one person could work. But there's a moment in the film where Pete is telling his dad, I can't afford to keep supporting you like this. And his dad is like fighting back and saying, no, 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 you have to keep doing that. I have the kids, they have to eat. Um, And then Pete says, well, why can't your wife get a job? And the father's response is, and I quote, well, if Claire gets a job, I'll have to hire somebody to watch the kids. Which just makes me want to bang my head against the wall. What is he doing that's so important that he can't raise his own children? So that's an upsetting little <laughs> factoid that we have going on there. We already saw he's not good with kids, Carla. He I lost mean, his true. only child before. Yeah, they'd get lost somewhere in the waters of Australia if it was up to him. <laughs> so I suppose maybe that's not the... Also, I just realized the fish should have an Australian accent, and now I'm upset about the whole movie Finding Nemo. In any event, yeah, it seems like these parents, Pete's parents, are just doing an abominable job with their finances. So we see where Pete gets it from. And just depending on your adult child to completely support you like that. Yeah, I don't understand why he can't get a job. He surely had a job at some point in his life. And maybe it was backbreaking, grueling work that he's no longer physically capable of doing at his not really advanced age, but you know, maybe he's just no longer able to do what he used to do. But surely he can find something. Go drive an Uber. I don't know. There's something you can do. Yeah. I mean, and he's getting an infusion of like 40 grand a year at the pace that they're going from his kid. So 40 grand a year is not going to be crazy difficult to replace with just odd jobs, right? Like driving an Uber, doing food deliveries. I mean, who knows? No, that's, that's a lot to pull off from that kind of work. But my goodness, how did you get yourself in this position? Yeah, I think he could do it. He could totally do it, but he just won't get out of his bathrobe and make it, make the magic happen. So Pete has been giving him money under the table without Debbie's consent or knowledge. What should he have done the first time his dad, you know, you're, you're 38, your dad who has brand new triplets comes to you and says, Hey, I'm having trouble making ends meet. We're going to lose the house. I need $5,000. Can you help me out? What do you do? What do you do? Ugh, I'm always so reluctant to involve money with family in any way. 
But if somebody I promise I'll pay you back. If he's in dire straits, I think it would tug at my heartstrings enough to probably help out a little bit. But I think you have to make it very clear. Like, look, if I'm getting financially involved in your life, I'm getting completely financially involved in your life. You got to open things up to me. You got to let me know where money is going, where it's coming in, where we can cut back because I can't have you continue to come to me over and over again. And just like that word filet that you used before, just filet everything completely open. There are no secrets anymore. If you're coming to me, you've lost the right to have your finances be private. Like that's all there is to it. I think that is a super unpopular opinion, Carla. And I I can't say I disagree with you, but I think most people feel like that is incredibly rude and judgmental of you. But I think you're I think you're 100% right. If you're going to be asking for help, the help should be complete. Yeah. I mean, you got yourself into the situation somehow, and then let's figure out what it was that landed you here and how can we prevent this in the future because you can't continue to count on me over and over again. That would be my approach to something like that. I have to say, it's probably really hard to do that with your personal relationships, but I do think it's the right thing to do. So Pete screwed up and he didn't offer to help him solve the underlying problem and instead just gave him some money as a stopgap measure. And sure enough, not long after that, the request for more money came out. It was like Mona Lisa Saperstein saying, money, please, just constantly. <laughs> um how do you cut it off? Like, when do you, when do you start to say no? I think there's no hard and fast number to it, but when you start to see behaviors that would lead people to be in a situation where they need to borrow money from you, that's when you've got to say, look, I'm just enabling bad behavior here and I can't continue to do that. I love you. I don't want to see you struggle. I'm really sorry. I want to help you get back on your feet. But if this is your version of doing that, I can't watch this happen. So when you see someone, you know, wasting money on frivolous things, living in places that they can't afford, driving cars that they can't afford, eating food that they can't afford, right? It's hard to say to somebody, this is just not within your budget. But if that's the reality, you're not doing anybody any favors by not acknowledging it. So I think when you start to see people living outside beyond what they can afford without your help, that's when I would cut off any sort of aid. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, money and family is a complicated topic to put it lightly, but I think these guys have a lot of additional uh, financial straits to navigate. So I'm actually excited for there to be a This Is 50. I really hope they get that movie in the works and get it out in the next few years because I would love to see how Pete and Debbie resolve their financial issues. Hopefully they cut off the dad and, uh, I don't know, maybe talk once in a while about real things. Talking is good stuff, man. It's really good stuff. Agreed. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, we hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll catch you next week. Thank you so much. Take care.